Okay, friends, I invite you to uh, open up your Bibles, have a seat, open up your Bibles. Um, I thought I would try something a little different today. They have a new sound system in here, and so I can actually have a, a little lapel mic, and I think that will save my voice uh, long term, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to hear me a little clearer. It's not too loud, is it? Is that much better? Okay, so I'm not having to shout at you. I feel like I'm yelling at you. To turn in your Bibles, to, you know, and so thank you, I appreciate that. Um, uh, so let's, uh, let's, ha- I invite you actually to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning's uh, sermon is, um, is, is going to be a lot of teaching today. It's going to be a lot of a, a teaching passage today. Uh, we are still in our series on who we are, and we were looking at the practices of the church we saw this for several weeks back in september the practices of the church the church a spirit-filled christ-centered church is is devoted and they're devoted to the scriptures they're devoted to one another Um, they're devoted to generosity and the lord's supper and prayer and worship and and in sharing the gospel and um we take a, a turn here, and now we want to look at the, the purposes, well, excuse me, the pictures of the church. And in looking at the pictures that the New Testament gives us of the church, we will hopefully be able to piece together for us uh, today and next week what the purpose the purpose of the church is. We saw what this, this word vision um, is referred to, the kind of... Used in kind of organizational corporate speak for, you know, a picture of what your, your organization's future looks like. What, what would you be doing? Well, the New Testament does give us a vision in that sense of the church by the pictures of the church, the metaphors, the images. And so I said last week, you know, the metaphor is, is the mission and the pictures show us our purpose. And last week we looked at one. And this is where today is getting to become a little more like a teaching and, and less um, sermony, uh, you know, and I mean sermony like some people picture a sermon. Um, last week, we focused on one of the five main pictures of the church. Uh, there were four more, and I thought um, the, the original plan was to go through the one each week. And so I talked about it with, with Janet and prayed about it. I thought, what if we were to do like all four in one day? Right? What if you guys thought about drinking from the fire hose today? You know, like, let's go through all four of them. And, um, and I, I think late last night, I thought maybe this was a mistake. But, but, um, but I went with it anyway. And so I, I thought, let's go through the other four. I'll kind of give you all of the scripture passages and then to just kind of let the image do what it does. It, it, use your, your mind and your imagination, your mental picture and picture what the, the image is and how that relates to or connects to, to Christ and his church. And so I'll draw together some of the implications for each one as we get into it. So just to kind of give you a heads up, it's a little different, a little different flavor uh, today. And so our scripture passage um, for our scripture reading will be the uh, will be connected to the first of these these images. And so for that, I invite you to turn to Ephesians five. If I hadn't said that already, Ephesians five verses twenty two through thirty three. 
And we'll come back to this passage, but just this will function as kind of our, um, our, one of our anchor passages today. So Ephesians 5, and actually let's begin in verse, um, verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, and I want to point out, there's your, there's your command. That's your command, that's your kind of main verse there. It's an imperative to be filled with the Spirit, okay? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to Submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the reading of God's word. We say thanks be to God, and let's express our thanks in prayer. God, we now come to you, and having read your word, and as we will continue to read many other uh, portions of your scripture we ask that you would that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we are creatures created created in your image you've made us to know you and to be in relationship with you you've made us to hear your word but because of our sinfulness and our tendency to rebellion against you we close off ourselves to you and your word and we need we need you to open up our ears we need you by your spirit to make your word come alive for us and may we as we read you give us eyes to to see and to imagine and picture these images that you've given to us through in your word for this relationship that your son Jesus has with us, your church. And may that form us and shape us into the image that you want to make us in. And that's the image of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So as we said before, we looked at the branches was our first metaphor that we saw last week from John chapter 15. So Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches and you need to be connected. A branch doesn't do any good if the branch is not connected to the vine. And as you're connected to the vine, you do what a branch is supposed to do and bear fruit. And so we talked about us as a church. We are to be united to Christ, connected to Christ in, in whom we have his life coursing through us and producing the life of the spirit in us. That's one of the, the first metaphors or picture, pictures that the New Testament gives us for the church. The second one, and we'll get through the other four here this morning. The second one is bride. Bride. Christ is the husband and the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband and the church is the bride. And we saw this in this passage that uh, Paul, uh, we read in Ephesians 5, that Paul writing to the church at Ephesus and he gives instructions um, he talks to them. The command is actually to do, be filled with the spirit. And then he goes on to give some specific instructions for um, how this is to be filled out in the church life. And he deals in uh, kind of what they call household codes. You see in chapter six, he's talking to children and parents and to servants and to masters. And he begins with his discussion about wives and husbands. Now, I bring this up not to specifically talk about uh, wives and husbands in marriage, I bring this up because of what Paul is doing here in this passage in his instructions for wives and husbands. He says, wives and husbands, you to behave this way with one another because, because it has been pictured for you in the relationship and the marriage between Christ and his church, between Christ and his church. And the main idea here, I think, is the oneness of the union of Christ in his church that parallels the oneness of the union between a husband and a wife. So Genesis chapter two, verses 23 and 24, we have kind of the marriage institutional verses where God had created um, Eve, uh, created the woman out of the side of the man, and then he presents the woman uh, to the man, and then you have this one verse explanation. It's kind of a song almost. It's a poem. And it says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. This at last is bone of my bone. This is, this is Adam speaking. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in verse 24, we have... This explanation of Adam's words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Okay, this becomes the pattern, the picture for all marriages on earth. This one flesh, this union, this oneness of this union. Jesus affirms this Matthew chapter 19 in his debate with the religious leaders. And he points back to these verses. And he says. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Again, the union, the one fleshness of this. Paul is bringing that same idea to bear on husband and wife relationships in the church in Ephesus. But he grounds that in there's a bigger marriage. There's a more glorious marriage. There's a more perfect marriage. 
that's modeled for you. And that marriage is the marriage of Christ and his church. Christ is the perfect husband. And the church is his bride, the bride of Christ. So this conveys kind of this oneness of this union of Christ in, in his church. So the self-sacrificing love of Christ is demonstrated in uh, these passages. And I, and I love what Paul writes here. Because let's, use, let's read this and ponder on what he's saying that Christ does for the church. Verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So husbands, we have a high bar. A high bar. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now he does something a little bit different here because some have tried to take the next several verses and then go, okay, how am I supposed to apply that to my wife? I, I, don't, I think that this is take, that taking the analogy a little bit too far. There's things that is described here, are described here in verses 26 and 27 that's unique to what Christ does for his church. He's not saying that husbands need to do... Uh, to the washing of water with the, the word and those kinds of things. This is what Christ is doing for his church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he returns to this instruction. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And then he adds in verse 29, just as Christ does the church. So Christ is husband and the church is wife. This, in, this emphasizes here this, the intimacy and the spiritual union that takes place between Christ and his own people. The church and his Christ and his church are, are united the scriptures speak of this oneness as Christ is in them and they are in him. Christ isn't just simply with his church. He's in his church. He's in his people. So here's a question. Have you ever pictured yourself as the bride of Christ? And being a part of a church. Have you ever pictured and thought of the church as being the bride of Christ and all of the oneness and unity that's pictured in there? How does viewing yourself as the bride of Christ change how you view the church? How does it change how you view your church? So Christ is... The husband and the church is the bride. That's our, the second metaphor. Here's the, the third metaphor, or third image for the church. And this is brotherhood. Okay, now I'm doing a little pastoral thing and I'm trying to do these with all B's. You're alliterating them, right? Um, so you would take the idea of family here. So you can put family, um, but I, I kind of like the idea of brotherhood. And then let me explain here what, what is pictured in here. That followers of Jesus Christ have God as their father. Some amazing verses to ponder in this regard. 
John begins his gospel chapter one by talking about Jesus coming to earth, coming to his own, coming to his own people and his own people rejecting him. But then John adds, but to all who did receive him, to received Jesus, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. They were born not, um, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Followers of Jesus Christ have God as their father. Paul says the spirit himself bears with it, witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, and then this part, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified in him. Or these verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Or in Galatians, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. So everybody who is a Christian has God as their father. And all of the imagery that that entails. A perfect heavenly father. And so being uh, having God as our father means that we are now a part of his household. Other places in the New Testament that speak of us being members of the household of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul writes, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we have God as our father. We enter into God's Household, we become a member of his household. Jesus, in the uh, letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is described as um, not being ashamed to call us, those who believe in him, brothers. So we're, we're brothers and sisters with Jesus. We have God as our father. Remember, we saw this in Mark's gospel, by the way, when the Jesus was surrounded by the crowds and Jesus's actual biological earthly mother and brothers came. And Jesus says to them, when the crowds let him know that your mother and your brothers are looking for you, he says, um, who are my mother and brothers? And he looks and he points to all of his believers, his disciples. He goes, here are my brothers and brothers. Those who do the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. God is not only is Jesus not ashamed to be called our brothers, God is not ashamed to be called um, our father. And so God, our father. So what is pictured in all of this? Well, God is our father in uh, pictures, this relationship and belonging that goes beyond just like superficial friendship. This is a deeply connected relationship. Jesus is the only begotten son, and as the only begotten son, all who are in Jesus are united to this perfect father. 
And this also means that fellow believers then are part of this spiritual family, the spiritual household. We are adopted into his family and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what do you think? How does how does that make you uh, feel to think that you are a member of God's family? I think sometimes we kind of pass over the the titles of God like God as father and we forget to think of what all that entails. God being a perfect father. You may have a trouble kind of experiencing and thinking of God as your father. Maybe not so much. How many of you have a trouble thinking of Jesus as your brother? Lord and Savior, yes, and rightly so. But being brothers with Christ, brothers and sisters with the Savior of the world. What, do you, what does that make you feel when you hear that you are a co-heir with Christ? The heir receiving the inheritance of, of the Father. And it says that Jesus has received all of that. And you think of all that Jesus received in his inheritance. And he says, and actually I share that with my people. Co-heirs with Christ. So we are... Branches, we're the bride, we're a brotherhood. We're also a body, a body. So as Christ is the husband, uh, well, as Christ is the the vine and we are the branches, Christ is the husband and we are the bride. Um, Christ is is our brother, God is our father, and we are brothers and sisters with one another. We are part of his household and his family. We are the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the body. Okay? What a wonderfully complex organism the human body is, isn't it? Kind of intricate and, you know, elaborate. I just, I always marvel at the, uh, uh, the interrelatedness that exists right in this frame that we all carry around. It's a pretty marvelous thing, isn't it? And God made these human bodies. He created us in this way. And that body pictures this union of Christ and his church as well. Look at a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 12. And again, this comes after the verses where he says, therefore, do not be um, conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then uh, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then in these verses, verses four and five of Romans chapter 12, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are the body of Christ. Paul elsewhere says these. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members a part of it. 
Part of why we read the passage in Ephesians 5 is you have a couple of these metaphors there too. This uh, imagery of, uh, in chapter 5, not only has the imagery of Christ as husband and the church as bride, but it also has that imagery of the Christ as the head and the, ch- and the church as the body. Okay, notice verse 23, if you're still at that passage. For as the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior, right? So God created these human bodies, marvelously complex, and yet it's one body, yet it has these all interdependent, uh, interdependent parts. And it's a unified whole, but it's complex, and each part has its role and does a unique function. So what lessons does that, uh, does that teach us about our church body? I've heard it said before, and I, I think that this is true. You can have religious organizations, but it's only in the church do you have one body of Christ. And it's a body, a healthy body of Christ when Christ is the head and each part does the role that it is designed to do. So one of the things that's usually connected with this idea of the body is this topic of spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts. Because as Paul had just said those words in verses 4 and 5 of Romans 12 about there being one body, but uh, individually members of it and having um, each member having a different function. He goes on to now talk in the, the remaining verses about the gifts that God gives to his church. In verses 6 through 8. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, have one body in Christ and individually members of it. And then he goes, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And he lists several of them here in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to one who contributes in his generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is just a little sampling. Several other places in the New Testament, you have passages that spell out these specific individual gifts that God gives to his church. They number anywhere, depending on how you categorize them, they number anywhere in between 20 and 30. So prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, mercy, leadership, wisdom, knowledge, healing, miracles, discerning gifts, interpretation of tongues, help, service, administration. Goes on and on and on. There's one of the primary, um, one of the primary spiritual exercises, one of the most beneficial spiritual exercises for any Christian is to discover and to develop and to deploy the gift that God has given you. What are these spiritual gifts? Well, let me kind of say a little bit of what they aren't. They aren't just natural talents. Okay, everybody possesses natural talents. Uh, these are not just natural talents. Spiritual gifts are spiritual. They're, it is a work of God, the Spirit, inside of believers that empowers you and gives you a 
abilities so that you could take that ability and serve the other members of the body, the church. Sometimes God will take a natural ability and then kind of infuse that with, and call that a gift, but, but we should never think of just natural, any natural abilities as being a spiritual gift. These spiritual gifts are spiritual. This is a, a gift from God to those who are in Christ and have salvation. So what happens when somebody develops these gifts? They discover them and they put them to use in the church. Here's just a couple of things. You become more effective in your service to God. And more effective in your service to his church, the body. You find your place in the church. The church is made up of many parts, yet it's one body and each part has to do its part. So you find out what your place is in a church. When you discover what your spiritual gift or gifts are. When you do, the church is healthier. In the previous chapter from what we just read, Paul talks about the growth in maturity. He kind of lists some of the different roles um, that are also categorized in ways with these gifts. And he says, when these are all put to use, when you have the... um, Leaders of the church equipping the saints for work of ministry. You have the building up of the body of Christ. This is chapter 4, verse 12. Until we all attain the, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So when the saints are equipped... And empowered by the gifts that God had given them to do works in the church, the church is healthier. And God is glorified. Peter, in talking about these gifts in 1 Peter 4, he says this, And each has received a gift. Okay, Each one of you has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied Grace. He goes on and says, whoever speaks, speak as one who is speaking miracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And then he says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Right. So if you take that that little uh, side detour comment that Peter gives He says, use your gifts to serve one another as good stewards of his gifts in order that in everything God may be glorified. So not only are you effective in your service to God and in his body, you find your place. The church is made healthier and God is glorified. So I love this imagery of Christ is the head and his, the, his own very body is the church. I think that illustrates the unity and the diversity of the people of God when all of the parts are doing their part. So here's a couple of questions. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Do you know how God has uniquely equipped you for service In the body of Christ. Do you know what part you play. As a member of the body. 
If you have questions about that, I would love to um, help you in that. I would love to see you and come and talk to me about it. I pray that all of us would come to know, to study, to explore, and find out um, both from God's word, from the wisdom of God's people, the ways in which God has uniquely equipped you for service in his church. Because he has. And I pray that he will show us how. So that's the body of Christ. And lastly, this is probably one of my favorites, the building. And by building here, I'm referring to um, the structures as the central location of the worship of God throughout the Bible. So this would be the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Um, It eventually finds its permanent home in the temple in Jerusalem. God had given specific instructions for this structure on how it was to be built and all of the symbolism that is conveyed within it. It's a wonderful picture. And that temple was still standing in Jesus' day. But that temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. But what the, by the Romans... The Romans destroyed it in AD 70. But what the New Testament has to say about that temple is that that temple is obsolete, right? It's not my words. That's the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews refers to that temple as being obsolete. And when you explore the rest of the New Testament, you understand why he's saying that that's obsolete. Because with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the Spirit's indwelling presence in his church, guess what happens? The church becomes the temple. The church becomes the temple. So here's a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And to just drive home his point, you are that temple. Now, you might see this in your footnotes. If you're looking in your English translation, there might be like a little, you know, kind of footnote at the top of the word you there. This is where I think it's so uh, helpful if we were, you know, like in Texas. It should be y'all, you know. It's plural. You, he's saying to you, this church in Corinth, you, don't you know that you all are singular, the temple? The temple was in the Old Testament. That was where God's uh, abiding presence was set to dwell over the temple. He's like, yeah, God's presence, the Holy Spirit is in you, y'all. You all are the temple. The Old Testament, the temple and the tabernacle were the centerpiece of Israel, Israel's worship. That was the location, the place where people would go and they would go to the mediator, the priests. And there would be one high priest who would go into the holiest places where the presence of God is set, said to dwell there. And that's how people would interact behind the veil into the holiest of places. Well, what happens when Jesus comes? As he's being crucified on the cross. It says that that temple 
The veil in that temple is torn into two. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days shortly before that, right? And they're like, it took 40 years to do this. You, what do you think you're going to do that? And John says, he didn't re realize he was referring to his body. Now, this is where it's saying his actual physical body. But then he's now, when you tie together these other passages here that we just said, the metaphor before, we are the body of Christ. Similarly, we are the building of Christ. We don't need a mediator to go any longer. We have the Christ, the high priest, who is seated at the right hand. He was into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, right? He's saying we have a high priest who's doing the priestly functions. He goes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. When he's saying draw near, is he saying, do you have to go to a specific location to do that? He's referring to, no, when you gather as the church, when you gather as the church, you're drawing near to the throne of grace. He comes back to this later in the book. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And here in the context, he's talking about when you gather together. A few verses later, he says, do not neglect the meeting of together as some are in the habit of doing. He's connecting all of this together. We enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he is open for us, but through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We are that building. We are the priesthood. It's described in Peter. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens. We saw this with the household, the brotherhood image. We're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See the imagery here? The cornerstone of the foundation is laid, that's Christ Jesus. And that we as the church are built upon the foundation, which is Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Wow. This, I, should, I don't know about you. This should, this should give you chicken skin. It gives me chicken skin. I can't show you. I got long sleeves, but this is exciting. The spirit of God, as he dwelled powerfully in the old Testament, in the tabernacle in the temple, it says that same spirit is present here. And it's not in a localized building here, there. It's in his church. It's when his church gathers together. That's awesome. Peter says the same thing. Lest we think that it's a unique thing, like Paul says this, or Jesus says, it's everywhere. Peter says the same thing. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men is referring to Christ. And again, picturing him as the, the cornerstone. 
Um, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And that people of God is a living building. It's a spiritual house. Where God's spirit dwells. There is a place where God's glory is manifested most clearly on earth. Where is that? Here. In the church. Think about it. Place where God's glory is manifested most clearly on earth. Of course, God is most clearly glorified in the Son, Jesus Christ. But what is the church? We gather together in his name. God's spirit is here. Jesus said, wherever you are gathered together, there I am in your midst. So when the church gathers together and does what the church is supposed to do, read God's word, expound on its teaching, sing praises to him, offer up prayers to do the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. God is there. God is present. You don't need a drama team. The spirit of God is here in his word. As his word says. So the place where God's glory is manifested most clearly on earth. Right here. And so we go. When we gather together, we're offering up sacrifices. We're, the imagery of you offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We do that when we gather together as the church. So I love the imagery here is of the intimacy of God's presence with his people and that we are the dwelling place of God on earth. So those are the metaphors for the church. So here's a couple of um, Questions to end our time. And if you're in your home groups, when you go to your home groups, there's questions in your handout for you to think about. This could be used for your own personal application, but it also would be great to do in your discussion with your home groups. But I would like to read these kind of as a way for us, uh, for our meditation and our reflections as we close. So let me read a couple of these. Which of these images stand out to you the most? In helping you to understand how God sees his people. How God sees you and his church. When we think about Christ as being the husband and the groom and the church as his bride. How does that change your view or has deepened your view for your respect for the church? How does seeing the church as the family of God change the way you view your membership in it? If you're a Christian, is it easier to think of yourself as a child of God than it is to think of yourself as brothers with Jesus or brothers and sisters with one another? And what does the image of the body of Christ bring to your mind? Do you see yourself as a member apart 
of the body that's functioning, that has a role to play in the health and function of the church to the glory of God. Have you ever thought about what spiritual gifts you might have? And then would you be interested in exploring it? And what do you think about the image of the church as the temple, the temple of the living God, where God's spirit is dwelling here in our midst? Is that encouraging and exciting? Or is that challenging and convicting? So that's the images that the New Testament gives us for the church. And hopefully that will give us a vision and a picture of uh, what our purpose should be. The union with Christ. Pictured in the one flesh union of husband and wife. The brotherhood of Christ being brothers and sisters with Christ and God as our father and members of his household, showing rootedness and connection and relationship and belonging. The body of Christ, with him as the head and the church as the body, that each of us has a unique part for us to play. And the building of Christ, the location where God's dwelling in presence is to be visible on the earth. May these show us what our purpose is as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you that you've given us these pictures. These are not things that the human minds of New Testament writers came up with. This is um, your spirit-inspired words given to us so that we could know and get a picture of what we should be. We thank you for the multifaceted nature of all of these images. And God, may your word and all of these images that are clearly depicted for us in your word. May you take these to help us as your body, as your bride, as your family, and as your temple, that we can know our place and our role in this world until Christ returns, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, will you stand for our closing uh, benediction? Reminder that the, the offering box is, is out in the hallway. If you have, as, as, uh, as is always the case, uh, if you have any questions about uh, this passage or, um, uh, or Christianity or anything that this message has brought to your mind or even the like, spiritual gifts as we spoke of uh, moments ago. Um, I'd love to talk with you afterward and encourage you to discuss these things in, in your home groups. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.